so that's neat too to be able to kind of go back every so often and rejuvenate yourself about the mission. We are here to preserve and protect Glacier National Park for future generations. Hard stop. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in today. It's peak summer here in Montana, and for many of us, that means trying as hard as we can to get up to Glacier National Park. So the timing is good to speak with Doug Mitchell, Executive Director of the Glacier National Park Conservancy. I learned a ton in this conversation about how our national parks and Glacier in particular operate and how they are funded, or perhaps more accurately, not funded. Some key topics I was excited to, to explore in this conversation with Doug include why an independent nonprofit organization like the Conservancy exists, what's the need for it, and learning more about the concerning mismatch between public funding expectations and the user experience. I wanted to learn about how the Conservancy makes choices about what projects to fund. And finally, I wanted to learn about the trade-offs between protecting the resource and promoting visitorship. Great thanks to Doug for coming down to Missoula for this conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you do too. So let's turn it over to Doug Mitchell right now. Okay, so we're here today with Doug Mitchell. Doug, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you are the executive director of the Glacier National Park Conservancy, and so many questions for you. You've been at the organization, what, about 18 months now? About 18 months. Uh, Justin, best job in the world, right? Being able to spend my days talking about the park, being in the park, yeah. uh, working with advocates who care about this very special place, right? It's one of America's greatest natural treasures. I mean, it's I unbelievable. Like it's an unbelievable place. I mean, any listener who hasn't been there, like, stop doing what you're doing right now. Well, depending on when this comes out and when you're listening, but stop doing what you're doing and go up there. Right, exactly. And and really, the, the feeling that you get, even however many times I've been in the park, right, just driving through the gate, yeah. There is this moment of, of calm and grandeur. It's, it's all of these really conflicting things, right, that mm-hmm. there, there's so much bigness. But at the same yeah. time, you feel this identity of yourself come alive in the park. It, it's really a special thing, and not just in our park, right, but, it, but that's one of the things about public spaces overall that people enjoy right here in Missoula, right? Sure. Being able to hike up to the M or, or be on the trails or be on your bike. It, it really is something in Montana that we really treasure. It's interesting too. You mentioned you know being able to know right away that you're in a national park, and that's v- very true. Regardless of of the park, certainly I haven't been to all of them, but every one that I've been to, it's very clear right away. Like this is a certain type of place. Yet each park, in and of itself, has its its distinctive brand. I mean, you go into Glacier, you feel different than if you go into Grand Canyon, if you go into Joshua Tree, or if you go into Yellowstone. It feels right. very different. Right. Exactly. And and uh, yet there is this public spiritedness about it that somehow right. when you go in those gates, um, you get this feeling of community, if you will, about being uh, being in this special place. But then you get the individual identity of the right. park, which which is really quite quite fun as well. And I think a lot of that comes with the people who inhabit the area. And here in the Flathead, uh, in this kind of greater western Montana area, um, you know, when you go to the park and you meet people from this area, they're going to ask you where you're from. They're going to invite you over for dinner, right? Sure. They're going to. They're, so, so that sense, I think, at Glacier is one of the other things that makes Glacier really special, right? If you're at Golden Gate, 
It's a really cool place. You're in Muir Woods, love Muir Woods, but you're less likely to have that kind of interaction just because you're in a different mm -hmm. type of social setting. Yeah. So you've been, I mean, it seems like your work experience, you've kind of been in a variety of public, private, government um, roles in your career, and it appears you're sort of uniquely qualified to be the leader of an organization that is sort of operating in that same space, right? Like, tell us, tell us maybe a little bit about yourself, but also, you know, what is the Glacier National Park Conservancy? It's not part of the park, but it's sort of this official fundraising mechanism or something like that. You tell right. us. It was funny, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 58. I've had a, the luxury of a great career, and I, about a, two years ago or so, now this job came available, and I had to chuckle when I talked to my wife about it. It's like somehow this is the perfect job, yeah, right? It's scripted for you. And at this point in my life, where where we both of us want to give back to the community that has mm -hmm. given us so much. My wife grew up in Kalispell. Um, we grew up hiking the park. Um, we met in college, and the rest, as they say, is is history. And we've always believed what my former boss Max Bacchus said. Um, which, which is that service is the most noble human endeavor. Okay. And, and I, I've tried to live that in a number of different ways, and sometimes that's public service, working for government. I worked for Max for a while. I, I worked in the Bullock administration mm -hmm. for a while. Um, I've done nonprofit work. I've owned my own government affairs consulting company here in Montana doing progressive policy and politics. And the idea of giving back to somewhere that you feel like you have something to add um, is really kind of kind of cool way to live your life. Sure, I think. and um, I encourage young people to to think about that as they're thinking about what's next when they're in college or they have that first job. How can you connect that with some larger feeling that you have in mm. your life about how you want to participate in things? And for this, for me, it, it had this unique. The, the conservancy is the fundraising partner, official fundraising partner of Glacier National Park. Partner. So you're partner. not a part of the National Park infrastructure. What was it under the, the Department, Department of the Interior? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're not part, we're not federal employees. We're actually yeah. the private partner. So we have a philanthropic agreement with the government, which, okay. which allows us to fundraise for them. We only write checks to Glacier National Park for projects inside Glacier National Park or, or in around Glacier National Park. Okay. Um, and so so that's kind of a unique job, right, that you're dealing with the federal government. So my past, having been in federal government, it's very helpful when the government shut down. Sure. It was neat to know I'd been in a government shutdown when I worked in the Senate. I knew how that looked and how it was going to be from the other side. Right. To be in the nonprofit sector, I'd been a managing director at the Montana Land Reliance doing private land conservation. So I had some of those skills as well. Um, and so it was a neat opportunity for, again, as I said, for, for us to give back in a place I really thought I could make a difference. So why does an entity like a national park need a private fundraising organization associated with it? it it's a great question, you know, and I, I think uh, as, um, as I t talk about a lot, it's really this conundrum, right, that particularly with people who care about what we do, if people are listening and saying, boy, that sounds really cool, they might also be saying, but how come I have to do that? Why doesn't yeah. the government pay for national parks? Isn't that the whole idea? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's true, but at the same time, it's equally true that that support has been fairly flat. Uh, we have on our website in our annual report last year kind of a neat graphic that shows that from 2002 to 2017, the 
funding for the park went up, well, actually went down by 1%. Right. The staffing went up by 5%, so basically flat. Meanwhile, there's 74% more visitors. We just under 3 million this year, but it's the first year in three that we haven't been at or above 3 million. Yeah, I mean, million. that seems like it's headlines in the, in the, in the paper month after month in the summertime in particular, record visitorship in June or July or whatever it is. I mean, and it, it matches with my experience over the last seven years of living in Montana. Like every time I go up there, it seems like there's more folks around, which in some ways is great. In other ways, it creates a lot of stresses for the, for, the, uh, for, the, for the land and for the facilities and the people and, and right. the wildlife, probably most of all. Right. So for the resource, right? So, th- yeah. so think about it this way. Montana has a million people in it, right? 735-ish miles wide. Mm-hmm. Every one of those people visited Glacier National Park, a million acres, every month of July, August, and September, yeah. right? It's a, it's a minor exaggeration, but it lets you think about the impact to the resource. So, so that's part of our job is to be able to say yes when the park comes to us and says, look, we don't have any more money to print the brochure that gets handed out at the gate. Mm-hmm. We'd like to replace the timbers that allow for handicap access to Trail of the Cedars, but we don't have the money to do that. Sure, We need to replace the bridge at um, St. Mary Bridge. Um, we want to do a study on links, the Lynx population, right? We'll have 64 projects this year that we're going to fund in the park for over $2.5 million, and that doesn't include the Sperry Chalet project. So it's become really, for not just Glacier, but for parks across America, these what are called friends groups, mm-hmm. um, have really become... Instead of the margin of excellence, which is what they we used to be called, you know, we provide the margin of excellence, that extra ranger or sure. you know this extra experience. Now we're the margin of survival. Right. That the park has to close places if things like the Glacier Conservancy, Yellowstone Forever don't exist. I mean that that sort of echoes exactly the realities we face here at the University of Montana and facing public uh, universities. And I sort of use that term a little lightly in the sense that, yeah, if we're a public university, yet we're not publicly funded to to the extent that we can deliver the product that we're contracted to deliver, it's sort of a, um, a difference between what is and what ought to be, right? Right, exactly. It's this mismatch between what I think Pub, the public expectation is yeah. and what the reality of the situation is. And it's complicated. I mean, your university example here in U of M and across the country mm-hmm. is the perfect one, right? So I'm, I'm a parent. I've had two kids who've gone through college. It would be logical to say, I got a tuition bill. I paid the tuition bill. Yeah, done but, deal. Right. That ought to be it, right? Uh, similarly, I'm a taxpayer. We have these national parks. I got my tax bill. I paid my tax bill. They should take care of these things. Well, yeah. somehow we've gotten upside down on on some of those issues, and and it's going to take a big public discussion. Yeah, to, I mean, do you think, think that's part that. of the broader kind of problem narrative discussion about infrastructure in this country? You know, bridges cl- crumbling and, and things like that. I mean, where where does that sort of land on your radar screen as you approach this work? Yeah, I think it I think it is that. I think it's a it's a priorities discussion, right? And I yeah. think in Montana one of the things that I hear loud and clear and have for a long time is that we really care about our 
public lands, our special places, right? That's mm-hmm. the way, that's the reason many of us live here yeah. is so that we can this afternoon be out on the trail and whether that's hiking with our dog or biking or whatever it is, that these, th- this value of ours is important for us to protect. I think the diversity of the country is such that that, that becomes a, a, a really interesting issue, right? Because yeah. in eastern Montana, the value might be something very different. Mm-hmm. And, and in Chicago, it might yet be something different as well. And so I, I really do think there's a national conversation about, about government priorities that is something that is start, has always been percolating, but I think is really starting to percolate in a way that um, may lead to some really important discussions. Well, and I think like most nonprofit organizations, your ultimate goal would be to put yourself out of business, right? Absolutely. I mean, if we <laughs> uh, if we had a national park system and, you know, there's discussions, for example, right now on really funding deferred maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. We'd breathe a sigh of relief. Um, and to to their credit, the, the Department of Interior, led by Secretary, former Secretary Zinke, with Sperry, showed the way. Right. We had a very clear discussion that, you know, this is a multi-million dollar project way outside the scope of the Glacier National Park Conservancy. If we mm-hmm. had to do it alone, it couldn't happen. And it's probably a shock to the park budget that the park cannot withstand in a, in a, you know, in a small number of years. So we had that discussion, said, is this a priority? Isn't it a priority? Secretary Zinke said it is a priority. Right. I'll get the money. And that decision was made. Now, a different decision could have been made, and it would have had a different outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the good thing about that discussion was we had this really great, early, vibrant, honest discussion. And uh, as a result, we're able to make progress. So, you know, if, if the Congress were, were willing to say this is critically important that we fully fund national parks and friends groups went away, mm-hmm. I'd be the happiest retired guy in Montana. <laughs> there you go. Well, let's talk about, you know, kind of the the actual business of doing the work. So... You know, what are, how does it work with setting funding priorities and, you know, you're fundraising for the park and they have their set of priorities, yet you're working with donors and I'm sure donors, particularly high dollar donors, have their own priorities. And so how does this whole process shake out and how do you set priorities? Yeah, it's really a fun process. Um, And I'll give a little nuts and bolts and then kind of step back a little bit. So every year, and it's happening right now, um, our grants teams, that's our volunteer board committee, and then we have a grant. Lacey Kowalski is our grants coordinator. She's amazing, as all of our staff. Um, sit down with all of the, the leaders in the park and talk about what their priorities are, in this case, for 2020, right? Because we have to, it's government. You've got to plan in mm-hmm. advance. Um, and Although they, 2020 is not that far in advance. I know, right? <laughs> um, especially when we have to raise money for it before it starts. Right? Yeah, there they, you go. They take cash uh, at most places that we do business with. <laughs> so so we have to also get a head start. So they throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall. Sure. You know, and what would you think of this? And what about that? And we've got this new idea for this, or we don't have any money for this anymore. So we'll end up with like 80 or 90 ideas. We'll spend two or three months going back and forth, kind of sussing them out. They will look if there are other pots of money for them. And then we'll come up with a group of projects that we have agreed to fundraise for. Um, as I said, this year it was 64 projects, um, you know, in the two and a half million dollar range. Uh, and then we put a publication together. We go out to donors. We talk about uh, what are the park imperatives. And then we listen to, to donors and supporters about what their, 
uh, values are as well and try and bring those then to those discussions with the park the following year. So this year is a good example. This year are, you know, there's a lot of concern about preservation of place mm-hmm. based upon the fact that we had 3 million visitors. I have a lot of conversations with supporters who say, gee, I just don't know how sustainable that is. What's the damage on wildlife? What's happening? I'm really concerned. And that's one of the reasons we're funding this landmark lynx study this right. year. We don't know. what I mean, lynx is a mysterious animal, right? It's super cool. Um, well, we should find out. And when we came to the park with, hey, we'd like to get in, suss out some of that information, they come with a really cool grant request, and then we're able to to fund that. So it's a very collaborative process. And then donors always have the ability to restrict their funds. So a lot of our donors say, I care about trails. Here's a check for $20,000 sure. only for trails. Um, or I care about education, right? So field trips that happen, we pay bus trips so the kids all from all over can come to the park. Um, people will say, I, I want to pay for 10 bus trips for kids. So uh, it's kind of fun. It's a, I, I can't wait to go to work in the, every morning um, because it's always something new. It's always something collaborative. Um, and it's really how do we get to yes? I mean, and that's a, that's a neat place to work. Yeah, and thinking about those kind of complicated issues we're getting to yes – there's not necessarily a direct line to it. I'm thinking of, you know, the example of the, the links and impacts on the links based on, you know, more consumption of the resource broadly. How do you and your organization kind of navigate that? You know, this park becomes more popular. There's more support for it, more engagement with it. Yet it's much more strain on the resource. And you sort of, in terms of your strategic imperatives, how do you kind of adjudicate uh, the preservation versus the participation um, divide. It's, it's a great, it's a great question. And interestingly, we had a board meeting here in February where uh, we we spent a number of hours actually going through that entire process. So um, recently, we did a study with Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, and we asked them to do kind of the mathematics of if we were to have a shuttle visitor system right. in the park that served the needs of all of the hikers in the park the way they currently are. So we just took the hiking data and said, here's here's that hiking data. What would we need? Mm-hmm. You know, the answer is 85 new buses. Wow. Okay. So, so you can go a couple of paths here. You can go, okay, 85 buses, X number of dollars per bus, parking places, and, and you can solve for that, mm-hmm. right? Or you can do what our board did, which, which is to step back and say, how does this meet our mission, right? Right. So, so if that is, so that's not a small amount of money. I don't know what the number is, but people who are listening can kind of do that number in their head and it's, it's millions of dollars. Right, but that's a math right? problem, not a strategy problem. Right? Correct. It becomes a strategy problem when you know that there's a finite resource in money. Yeah. And if you're going to do $2 million in buses or $2 million in preservation, that because you probably can't do both. Mm-hmm. So we walk through kind of a really interesting process of kind of saying, so we want a great visitor experience. Everybody does. So that's one thing. But why why do we want the visitor experience, right? What, why would people visit Glacier? Well, they visit Glacier because it is one of the most unspoiled, unified ecosystems in the country. So there is a little bit of chicken and egg, but there also is a little bit of causality, yeah. right? So, so if you solve for the visitor in damaging the resource, then is the visitor going to want to come anymore? Right. Right. 
if you protect the resource first, then the visitor issue then becomes a communications issue with mm -hmm. the visitor, right? Because we would not be the first park to think through how, how do we protect resource first and then figure out visitation in a way that is transparent, accessible, but may not mean that the moment you want to drive in your car and go to Glacier that you're going to get through the gate. Because right now that's not happening in a lot of places in the park anyway. The park has had to swing the gate on the east side for safety reasons a number of times, but it's not transparent. You can't plan around it. So that's the kind of discussion that, again, I feel really blessed to be able to have. We've got a very smart, uh, very thoughtful board who came out of that discussion saying, we're about the preservation of place. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the first priority. And we do that so that we can have a place that people can come to to feel nourished, to have that sense that you and I talked about when this podcast started, to have that sense of serenity and calm and right. peace and power. And um, so, so that's neat, too, to be able to kind of go back every so often and rejuvenate yourself about the mission. We are here to preserve and protect Glacier National Park for future generations. Hard stop. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Mike Morelli, Director of the Entertainment Management Program at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. And, you know, thinking about that mission, and this uh, for risk of distracting us in this conversation, but it might be useful for listeners um, if you could lay out just kind of broad differences in purpose and mission across different types of public lands, like national park, national forest, wilderness area, BLM land. I mean, there's so many categories, but like just kind of the, the basics, like what's the purpose of a national park versus a wilderness area versus a national forest? Right. You know, and we, we're so blessed to have so much of all of them yeah. right, in our area. So uh, there's there's quite a lot more multiple use activity related to a national forest area, mm -hmm. right? Where you may have everything from logging activities to roaded access, sure, um, to you know even f firewood collection, right? Um, to to you know game game access issues that are not the case in the national park, right? So in the national park, uh, you don't have the opportunity to there there will be no timber sales. In yeah, the there's park. very little extraction function. I, exactly. And in a wilderness area, e even less, right? Mm -hmm. that, that in a wilderness area, you're going to have significant restrictions on, um, on, on, on multiple use, I guess I'll say, uh, in a wilderness area. Um, any, any kind of changes one want, might want to make in a wilderness area are going to be much more restricted. And so Glacier National Park is kind of this mix, right? Because it has some wilderness components within the confines of the million acres, and then it abuts national forest land. So I do think one of the things as we think about visitation is to think about whether there are some partnerships with the national forest mm -hmm. that abuts Glacier National Park that has a very nice, very beautiful trail system um, where we might be able to provide some visitor experience that may not be within the confines of the park, but, but I'm not sure that many people would know the difference, right? When I take people in Big Fork, my wife and I, we live down in Big Fork, and I take them up to the Swan Range to hike. It's not Glacier National Park, right. but 
hiking in Eos and coming back down the backside, particularly if you go up and you see the snow on the back. I mean, it's spectacular. Yeah. And the view in, in, in the back, I mean, it's just, it's breathtaking, right? So I think there are other ways to solve for the visitor experience that maybe you don't go all four days into the park. Mm-hmm. But you do two days in the park and you do two days in National Forest. And so I think there are some partnerships that we can think through that can be very useful to take advantage of exactly what you say, these these multiple use opportunities. Because there are a lot of people also for whom Glacier is not particularly accessible. Right. And and so if you are, um, you know, uh, if if you're older or or you uh, don't have the ability to get around as easily uh, mm-hmm. or at all, um, you know, Glacier's kind of a tough ask. Um, and there might be some other places that... Right. And that, then I guess that gets to kind of the, 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 the usage. <clears throat> Accessibility and visitation kind of go hand in hand in that, like, if, if the park is thinking about limiting vehicle access to going to the sun road or switching to shuttles and buses like that has implications for people that aren't as uh, aren't as mobile can't access the trails as easily and they can't drive their own car up there and can they access the shuttle these these are big issues park needs to tackle they're really big issues and they need to be um ones that the community tackles together Right. right and i think that's the other part that is really cool about this particular park and the leadership in this particular park. Jeff Mao, and I say it publicly, and I've said it in groups of his cohorts as superintendents, we are lucky to have the best superintendent in America at mm. Glacier National Park. Jeff is um, experienced and thoughtful and and cares about what the community uh, needs and cares for. And so any of these kinds of changes, he is going to really work out and have be in conversation with his leadership team with his staff and with the larger, broader community. And Sperry's a good example that there was no overstepping the uh, desire, not just the need, but the desire to sit with the public at numerous public meetings and go through the plans and say, here's three or four options. What do you think? Right? And mm-hmm. this went well beyond what was required because you need to have that kind of buy-in. And here in Montana, we expect to know our, I mean, when I work for Max, right, Nobody called him Senator Baucus. He was Max. Everybody expects to know you're elected official, and you expect to have a voice in the things that happen around you. And and Jeff gets that. Um, And it's really fun to work with him because of that and for any number of reasons. But as we look at any of these issues, that's going to be the first place to go, is to come to the public and say, hey, you know, this is an issue. You waited in line for 30 minutes to get to the gate at Many Glacier, and then you were told you couldn't get in problem this is a bummer yeah um so what here are some ideas about what we might do about it and and um and there are lots of examples in other parks where they've done different pieces yeah give us i mean what is a solution to that problem or a solution yeah so um it at the at the golden gate conservancy and and golden gate national park which includes muir woods Mm -hmm. uh they went to a reservation only parking system okay that makes sense yeah if you're going to walk in you can walk in anytime you want if you're going to drive your car, you just get a reservation, and it's very inexpensive. Otherwise, you take the shuttle. Mm-hmm. And there's shuttles from Mill Valley, and there's a number of them. And I, I, I think they're concessionaires. And so you can. there's many ways you can get into Muir Woods. Um, but now when you go, uh, and I'm fairly familiar with Muir Woods, in, in the past when you would go, you'd drive down into the canyon, and you might you would park illegally a mile and a half away. 
um, in yeah, the resource. I've, I've, I've parked right? there illegally, right? mile and a half away. Right. Yeah. With with your wheels in, in the, the ditch, riparian in area. In the drainage, yeah. Where they shouldn't be, right? Not good. And so that's that's one solution. Um, uh, there's also just shuttle-only solutions. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that's been very successful. The, the good thing and bad thing about shuttles is if you have a system that works, people use it. Yeah. Right. So when you look at Zion, which has probably Zion and Acadia have the best yeah, shuttle system. Shuttle system in Zion. Right. Yeah. And as a result, they had 6.5 million v- users of the shuttle system wow. in 2017. Wow. So when it works, people will come. Yeah. Right. Build it, and they will come. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um, it. It's also intellectually fun, right? Because there, there's all of these if-then statements. Sure. That um, that again the the public needs to kind of think about how do we suss that out. It's also kind of fun to to think through what we are doing and how that may or may not work, right? So on the west side of the park, when the line goes all the way out to Highway 2, which happens more regularly, yeah. um, the interesting response, and again, it's a common response, is that what they do is they open the gate and they let everyone in so that the cars aren't backed up. Yeah, on the, the bottleneck. Eliminate the bottleneck, right? Right, but are you just moving the bottleneck? Just pushing, yeah, and are pushing you moving it up the, to the bottleneck lake. to the place that can least take the bottleneck? Sure. Right? So, so think about going to the Sun Highway. None of us have had this in our life yet, but we had a situation last year where there, a car is actually uh, one of those Mercedes vans got sideways and blocked both lanes. Oh gosh! It didn't take very long till the traffic was piled oh, yeah. up, and everyone realized. This is real bad, mm-hmm. right? So they were little backing cars down the going to the Sun Highway, um, and kind of saying, "If there's a fire, yeah, this uh, is know, just a catastrophe waiting to happen." Right. So, so again, there's a lot of thinking that has to and caring that has to go into yep. to this discussion as we as we move forward um, together. Uh, with a finite resource, there are only X number of parking spots at Logan Pass. There will never be more, mm-hmm. um, and more and more people want to be there. So, right. how do we work those things out? So, so thinking about something, you mean, you've mentioned the Sperry Chalet a couple times, and you know, what's the process of deciding what to do in that case? I mean, is it an absolute like we will rebuild, or is it? Is it appropriate to rebuild, and what should that rebuilding look like? And how do we, you know, all these different considerations, history, participation, access, all, all these things. Yeah, absolutely. Sperry is a is a really interesting example of of thinking through, um, and I, I like to do things incrementally. Yeah. Um, so Sperry burned down on a Thursday night, Friday at ten o'clock. My board chair and I were in the superintendent's office, basically with our checkbook. Because we'd seen the pictures and we had 30-foot-tall walls yeah. and 50-foot-tall chimneys with no support whatsoever, right? Every piece of wood had been burned out. With 20-plus feet of snow every winter, these walls were not going to stand. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we did is, okay, well, let's at least give ourselves a shot to sure. rebuild. So let's put, preserve what's let's left. Let's preserve what's left, the ruin, and then we'll think about what's next, right? So, um, so we did that, and literally we went to the – to the Columbia Falls um, hardware store with a credit card and bought timbers that afternoon wow. and had them helicoptered in the next day to Sperry to to prop up the walls for the for the winter and then and then you think through exactly the questions so 
should this just be a ruin? Um, you know, it's, it's in a national park. It is there because it's kind of grandfathered in. Is this a place where we should have hotels? Um, what other buildings are already are going to remain around it? Right. So all of those pieces kind of immediately got into this large conversation and literally from the Secretary of the Interior's personal office to people's homes in Kalispell, Montana and around the country where people weighed in uh, through a set of public hearings about what we should do. Um, the, the thing on Sperry that I think tipped it uh, in terms of building it is the, the dormitory building burned, but the remainder of the buildings, including the dining room, which is a very important part of the Sperry experience that people remember, absolutely, um, was still existing. So even if you decided we're not going to rebuild, we're just going to have a ruin, there would have been a significant capital campaign to fund retaining a ruin that wouldn't fall down on people. Right. And you would still have a footprint uh, almost an equivalent footprint of uh, of a of development, if you will, inside the confines of the national park. So, for some additional resource, you could retain the historic character of Sperry and bring it back to life, uh, and really not make a major impact in terms of the footprint. Now, if someone had proposed to make Sperry fifty rooms larger, sure. Non-starter. Non-starter, completely, okay. and appropriately so. Um, so it was good, and we had that discussion. We had people come to the public hearings who stood up and said, there should not be structures inside the national park. Hmm. It's a viable... Uh, it's a reasonable it, position. A, absolutely, from people with good, you know, with with absolutely good intelligence and, and thought. But to your point, then you'd have to do a demo and remove all the ruin or, or make it safe. And all, yeah, all these right. And whether you could do that, it being you know, it's a it's a historic building. Whether you'd be responsible yeah. to just leave it the way it was, and so it, it feels like it's to scale in terms of of what it should be. It's really been amazing to me to to have people literally from around the world weigh in on Sperry. The the amount of impact that facility has had on people's lives mm. is just absolutely remarkable. Um, I mean, I'd had a chance to stay there previously, and, and I thought it was super cool. But one of the conversations that I had that was really compelling to me, we got a contribution from a, a nurse in Florida. And you know, I know nurses, and it was $1,000, right? And I know huh. nurses don't make a lot of money. Yeah, it's and, a big, and I, right, that's a big, big contribution. That's a big deal. So I called her up, and I said, you know, I, I just thank you. I mean, this is amazing. And, you know, she had gone there as a young person. And as a young person, she was not in a good place. And being there in that majesty and the peace and the grandeur um, changed her. Yeah. And, and so for her, this was a place she had to know was going to be there for someone she'd never met, who's going to be in that situation today, tomorrow, 50 years from now. Right. And that's the kind of thing that kind of makes your skin tingle and says, We're, this really is something. Yeah, you're doing important work. Yeah. It makes me think about, so we had, um, I used to work with this, one of our graduate students, Jake Jorgensen, who, he did his doctoral research down, and in, in, most of it was done in Yellowstone, but he studied the concept of autogra- autobiographical memory. So how do we create memories that sort of become part of your identity? And he studied this in the park, thinking that, you know, are there certain types of experiences 
that um, becomes such a part of who somebody is that that would be predictive of future engagement with the park, whether that's getting a check from a woman in Florida or somebody volunteering for a trail work day or anything in between. Um, how does your organization think about ways to get more people caring about the park, however that's expressed, whether in dollars or in behavior or both? Yeah, it's a great question because one of the things about being the official partner of the National Park and having a cooperative agreement is that we have to operate under a set of guidelines um, that are very restrictive. Yeah. So when I came to this job, I was surprised to find that the Glacier National Park Conservancy had a total of just under 4,000 donors. So think about that for a minute with 3 million visitors. 4,000 donors. 4,000 okay. donors, okay. Yeah. right? But, but with 3 million visitors, right, you yeah. just kind of do this extrapolation of the math and you say that I just took the easiest job ever, right, because we ought to be able to multiply that by a lot. Right? You would think, yeah. Right. But part of the problem is we, by agreement with the park, can't get any information about park visitors from the park. Right? Really? So, okay. So we have to gather that information in hand-to-hand -hand combat, if you will, right? And um, that's harder. And in in these days, it, there are some new ways for people to do that digitally. But also, um, there are some questions about what parts of that are appropriate, right? So, you know, one could geofence the entry to the park, and you could grab IP addresses, and th there's all that technology, right? But that doesn't feel like us. We feel like we need to still be in a more authentic, original discussion okay. with people. Um, so, you know, we've upped our digital game where, you know, people can now go on Glacier.org and, and you may get a pop-up that says, hey, if you'd like to keep in touch with us in the park, um, let us know because we've, we've found that we don't know you. And, mm -hmm. and then you can either say yes or say no, and then you can get online and look at the webcams or whatever you want to do. Um, so we want to then start a conversation with those folks. And we've expanded now to 6,000 donors. We now have an email list of about 21,000 versus 6,000 a year ago. Um, but I'm, I'm not, it's not like we need to have a million. We want to have really this sense of community and this authentic conversation. And so there's a balance for us. We're, our goal is not money. Our, our goal is the preservation of the park. Sure. And so, um, you know, we're, we're different than a lot of folks. We also understand we're not curing cancer. And I want to be super respectful about that. I had lunch with a, uh, with a, a corporate do potential donor today. And, you know, they spend a ton of money supporting food share and, mm -hmm. and Special Olympics. And it's like, look, those are, those are super life-changing events. Yeah. And, and don't stop doing that, right? Right. But is there a way for us to to create some partnership in a different way that, that might help help the park. So um, so that's another fun part of the job is, is kind of some of these communications issues are, are particularly fun and interesting because we have such a, something to, I'll use the word sell, but promote, right? So our, we could have a great digital campaign just on photography alone, mm -hmm. right? Send us your hashtag Glacier Love photograph. Right. Because right. um, people love Glacier. And that's where the numeric mismatch of donors and email addresses still challenges me intellectually, right? Because I think if you had three million visitors and half of them went twice, so you have a million and a half, and 10% of them had a good time, which is a way low number, right? 
Right. You're still at 150,000 yeah, yeah. people. I mean, there's some big gaps here. And then this fact that you can't really share data from the with the park necessarily, or it's yeah. a one-way share, I guess. One-way share, yeah. yeah. So um, so that's fun, too. It's a, it's a great opportunity because we want to really – we think we've got um, something to talk about. A lot of people, when I go to a Rotary Club, and I'll do one tomorrow, um, I will ask how many people have, have – ever heard of the Glacier National Park Conservancy? Yeah, I mean, that was a question I had. It's just general awareness of your organization. Zero. I mean, really? you know, and and um, that's one of the other things when I came to this. And again, I'd worked statewide. I've been to every county multiple times. Um, I know that Glacier Park is Missoula's park. Glacier Park is Shelby's park. Mm-hmm. Glacier Park is Cutbank's park. Helena's park. Great Falls's park. But we need to do a better job of telling that message. And Great Falls, literally at the Rotary Club, nobody. Zero. People. Really, um, you know, and in Kalispell, obviously, it's it's different. But sure. So that's a great opportunity for us to be able to, and that's our responsibility. We're clearly not telling our story, uh, perhaps the way that we need to, in terms of the value that we add to this place that means so much to us. I mean, I I know teachers who are at schools where we provide the bus service, and they don't know that the conservancy exists, but they have just loaded students on the bus to go to the park. Yeah, and one of your programs. So that seems like maybe a good way to kind of land the ship a little bit. Like, how do people find out about your organization? And and more importantly, how do they get involved in the work you're doing? Yeah, so I I think the, um, you know, the easiest place these days, everybody lives online, right? So so we have a pretty vibrant, um, interactive web presence. It's a great website. At at Glacier.org. I particularly appreciate how, you know, your priorities are laid out. And this graphic we referenced earlier is on the website, super compelling. I like how there's kind of price tags associated with a lot of the things you're doing. Like, this is what it's going to take to get this thing done and this thing done and this thing done. And that's very... Very compelling. We want to be completely transparent yeah. with folks about our annual report. Talks about all of our overhead costs. You know, and, and you know, there's just they're they're just numbers. So numbers, in my view, no hold no power. Uh, and the more people know about what you do, I think the the better it is. And mm-hmm. we and and we have donors who will literally. I will get a call once a month from somebody who will use that guidebook, and they will call me and say, "I want to fund that project, like the whole project." Yeah, so as we kind of bring this conversation to a close, how can people learn more about your work, how to get involved in the organization, um, all of it? Yeah, Glacier.org is really the the best vehicle, our our website. We spend a lot of time on our website, and we try and keep it fairly current. It's where you can go every day and see all the the webcams. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it's something we we support in the park are the the webcams. So you can go on to Glacier.org and you can look at Logan Pass today. Sure. Oh, um, fantastic. See see what it looks like and um, see what uh, the Native America Speaks programs are going to be like uh, this summer. You can look at all of our projects. They're all listed. Mm -hmm. We're very transparent about Yeah, I like that. Like each each project sort of tells you, hey, this is what it's going to take to get it done. This is the dollar amount. And we had uh, on on Giving Tuesday last year, we challenged people to fund water bottle fillers, which may seem silly, but- No, that's a big deal. Trying to get plastic bottles out of the park. Yeah. Trying to make sure people are prepared when they hike, right? They're, They're not inexpensive. But we funded two of them in one day, just online from donors who came awesome. came uh, to respond to that. And I'll have donors who will call and say, I'll pay for the bridge at St. Mary Falls. And at $14,500, where do I send my check? Sure, yeah. Um, so that's one way. The other way people don't understand, we, we actually run on behalf of the park also the retail stores in the park. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Right. And that's the case in every park. Parks don't – federal government doesn't sell stuff. Right. So they always have a, a contractor who does that. In this case, in the parks, they'd use a nonprofit so that all the money that comes from that goes back to the park. Um, so if people are looking for a map or a water bottle or a T-shirt or books about the park particularly, um, Glacier.org has all of that stuff as you're preparing uh, for your trip. And if you're coming to the park with visitors, uh, come go to the visitor centers, and that's where the stores are located. Um, and when you buy something there, your money goes straight back to projects in the park, which is really cool. Absolutely. So, Doug, Thank you, one, just broadly for the work you do and the work that your organization does. And I encourage people to visit Glacier.org, learn more about it, get involved, go to the park, like we said before. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the pod and and telling us more about uh, this important organization. Thank you. Thanks for having me down. All right. So get yourself out to Glacier, support the park, donate, volunteer, whatever. It's a special place. All right, coming up next week, we have something a bit different, a live recording of two panel conversations I moderated at the recent Innovate UM conference. Some cool conversations, so tune in next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors, These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. And before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally... If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.